In this lecture, we look at conceptualizing power and partnerships with reference to the work of Max Weber. In the distribution of power within the political community, class, status, and party, Max Weber explains the intrinsic properties of class and how class, status groups, and political parties make up the structure of our society. According to Weber, the three are a phenomena of the distribution of power within a community. He essentially details the human desire for social power and how through class, certain forms of power can be achieved. Weber argues that power can take a variety of forms. Power refers to the chance of an individual or number of individuals to realize their own will in a communal action even against the resistance of others who are participating in the action. A person's power can be shown in the social order through his or her status, in the economic order through his or her class, and in the political order through his or her party. Thus, class, status, and party are each aspects of the distribution of power within a community. Social order refers to the arrangement of social honor or prestige within a society. Different status groups occupy different places along the prestige continuum. Economic order, in turn, refers to the general distribution of economic goods and services, for example, from owners and non-owners. That is, to the arrangement of classes within a society. Finally, political order relates to the distribution of power amongst groups, parties, to influence communal decisions. Aware that money or capital also has a large role in the distribution of power, Weber begins to discuss class and how economic inequality shapes class. Class is defined in terms of the market situation. A class exists when a number of individuals have in common a specific casual component of their life chances insofar as this component is represented exclusively by economic interests in the possession of goods and opportunities for income and is represented under the conditions of the commodity or labor markets. When market conditions prevail, property and lack of property are the basic categories of all class situations. We'll discuss this in greater depth in the next slide. At this stage, however, we must point out that the concept of class interest is ambiguous. Collective action based on class situations is determined by the transparency of the connections between the causes and the consequences of the class situation. If the contrast between the life chances of different class situations is merely seen as an acceptable absolute fact, no action will be taken to change the class situation. A class in and off itself does not necessarily constitute a group. In fact, Weber writes, the degree in which social action and possibly associations emerge from the mass behavior of the members of a class is linked to general cultural conditions, especially those of an intellectual sort. He further writes, if classes are such uh, are not groups, class situations emerge only on the basis of social action. Put simply, a 
an individual's class is determined by what choices that individual or community has in, in order to sustain comfortable means of living. Property is the basic category that Weber believes defines class situation. The basic economic concept of supply and demand reigns over this important fact of life. The demand for land is infinite, while the supply is limited. This entails that ownership of land has a potential of power. If one has a lot of property, and many are looking to buy that property, the individual has the power to distribute the land to whoever they want, for whatever purpose, and for as much money as the market dictates. While property being the simplest yet most profitable form of all goods, Weber goes on to detail what he calls the market situation. The market situation is primarily the class relationship between renters and those who offer a service or good and must rent a piece of property. The property owners are often of the upper class and have control of their life situation. In contrast, those who own no property are primarily of the lower middle classes and have little control over their life situation since they must follow certain societal rules put in place by the ruling class. In short, economic interest is at the forefront of class status as well as social power. Weber goes on to note that in past time periods, mainly in the Middle Ages, economic interest was monopolized, causing the gap between the rich and poor to be astronomical. Unlike the present day, he suggests, there is no fence in the middle for those teetering towards one side or another. It was either poverty or riches. Weber claims that the class struggle between the business owner and the worker is the result of both having conflictual goals. And it makes it difficult for both groups to agree on what is suitable for the working environment. This is essentially due to the fact that both groups pursuing opposite objectives in the same setting. Certain organizations have been created to focus the communal effort towards a common goal. The organization of people based on a class situation is what Weber believes caused a slowdown in production once factory workers began speaking out against poor working conditions and lower pay. Trade unions are a good example of this but it is apparent that class struggle in turn solidifies the class situation even further. The worker-boss struggle is something that continues to go on, but Weber claims that these struggles may in fact strengthen a class situation. This is mainly due to the fact that class is forced to act accordingly to their prescribed class situation. However, he feels that does not make a class a community since the assumption that people in similar class situations share similar ideals and beliefs is simplifying a complex situation. Nevertheless, history has shown that most class struggles are the result of the lower classes protesting the actions of the upper classes. The reason being, as Weber states, those who control property in turn have power. And in society, those who have wealth have the property. Weber goes on to mention how the equal distribution of capital to a class as a whole would create a drastically different attitude than the current state where wealth is often unevenly spread out and the attitudes vary by class. He argues all communities are arranged in a manner that goods, 
tangible and intangible, symbolic and material are distributed. Such a distribution is always unequal and necessarily involves power. As we have and will continue to see, classes, status groups, and parties are phenomena of the distribution of power within a community. Status groups make up the social order, classes the economic order, and parties the legal and political order. Each order affects and is affected by the other. Unlike classes, status groups delineate equality of social groups. When we go back to social honor, which Weber claims is the pursuit of all people, status groups are a way to achieve social honor depending on basic societal conventions. Essentially, social groups are communities of people who share similar lifestyles and gather communally to celebrate their chosen style of life. While he contends that people of different classes can mingle together in a status groups, the possibility of, a, say, a dock worker going to a gala event at a country club is remote. In most cases, a person's lifestyle is determined by their economic status, but monetary reasons are not the only method of creating a lifestyle. Further, the way in which social honor is distributed in the community is called the status order. The criteria for entry into a status group may take forms such as a sharing of, of kinship groups or a certain level of education. The most extreme of a status system with a high level of closure, that is, strong restriction of mobility between status, is the caste system. Their status distinctions are guaranteed not only by law and convention, by, but, but also by uh, religious sanctions. We can thus assert that ethnic or cultural aspects have a large effect on a person's lifestyle, which in turn determines what status group they affiliate with. It is ethnic-based status groups that often work more on tradition or ritual, and in certain circles, the exclusion of other groups or people is a commonly practiced tradition. Weber argues that status honor is a more important source of a group social action that is class or relation to markets. Status groups can do this in a variety of ways. First, status may be a means of maintaining the position of a group that does have privilege. The status group may be closed with privileges available only to those in the group and denied to those outside the group. Further, a status group may lead to the development of parties to further some specific interests of the status group. Thus, status groups may become the means by which power or authorities exercise, the old boys network, professional status groups and organizations, religious or ethnic groups. The key point to remember is this, is that social honor may be accorded to those who behave in the manner considered desirable by the status group. In this way, the ends of a status group may be furthered. Social approval is a means of achieving the ends of the group, while social disapproval may be used as a means of disciplining those who do not behave in the approved manner. Status group can also be uh, seen as, as having those individuals who have limited power to begin with, who then form a status group in an attempt to gain greater control over economic and social resources. Here, if resources are scarce, 
forming a group which is able to exercise some control over the distribution of these resources may be a means of increasing the power of that group in society. For example, the professionalization of the medical profession uh, could be an example of this. And really, in general, the professionalization of any occupational grouping is a means of achieving these ends. The restrictions placed on entry may be partially economic, but they're also partially social in nature, having to do with status, honor, and prestige. For example, some professions which have been male-dominated have excluded women. It would appear that this is not necessarily for economic reasons as an attempt to perpetuate status distinctions constructed on particular views of what are appropriate gender relations. Um, in general, parties are formed to rationalize some of these procedures and pursue the goals of the group. While status groups are communities, unlike classes, parties are a much broader form of communities as their limitations are not based solely on economic or ethnic standing. Parties are associations that aim at securing power within an organization or, or the state. Uh, for its leaders in order to attain ideal or, or material advantages for its active members. Thus here, Max Weber is not referring narrowly to what we think of as political parties, such as the Democrats or Republicans or the Conservatives or the Liberals, but to political groups more broadly conceived. Parties can be seen as an outgrowth of class struggle. They, they can represent status groups, classes, or merely their own members, and may use a variety of means to attain power. Since parties aim at such goals um, as getting their programs developed or accepted and getting positions of influence within organizations, it is clear that they operate only within a rational order within which these goals are possible to attain, and only when there is a struggle for power. Weber defines power as the chance that an individual in a social relationship can achieve his or her own will even against the resistance of others. This is a very broad definition and includes a wide variety of types of power. In order to make this definition more useful in the study of, of history and society and organizations, Weber suggests domination as an alternative or more carefully defined concept. He defines domination as the probability that certain specific commands or all commands will be obeyed by a given group of persons. Features associated with domination are obedience, interest, belief, and regularity. He notes that every genuine form of domination implies a minimum of voluntary compliance. That is an interest based on ulterior motives or general acceptance that is an interest in obedience. Examples of dominance can include parent-child relationships, employer-employee relationships, teacher-student relationships, domination within the family, um, political rule that is generally accepted and obeyed. Namely, a power relation is one in which dominance involves one of three attributes. There is first a voluntary compliance or obedience. Here, individuals are not necessarily forced to obey, but they do so voluntarily. Those who obey do so because they have an interest in doing so, 
or at least they believe they have such an interest. Another attribute is the belief in the legitimacy of the actions of the dominant individual or group is likely. Although here Weber is, defines this as, as authority. That is, the particular claim to legitimacy is to a significant, a, a significant degree and according to its type treated as valid. A third attribute is compliance or obedience is not haphazard or associated with a short-term social relationship, but it is a sustained relationship of domination and subordination, so that regular patterns of inequality are established. When dominance continues for a considerable period of time, it becomes a structured phenomenon, and the forms of dominance becomes the social structures of society. Temporary or transient types of power are not usually considered to be dominant by Weber. This definition of domination also eliminates those types of power that are based on sheer force, since force may not lead to acceptance of the dominant group or voluntary compliance with its orders. Situations of overt conflict and force are also relatively unusual. In fact, Weber considers overt forms of class conflict and class struggle to be uncommon. While Weber's definition of domination may be narrow, it is still a useful way of examining relationships that do become structured. And this is something we will be looking at in our later lectures when we look at government-private enterprise relationships and government-NGO relationships. The final key sort of proposition we're going to entertain when examining conceptualizing power and partnerships from the Weberian conception is legitimacy. When individuals develop uniform types of conduct, and this type of conduct or usage becomes long established, it becomes customs. These can emerge within a group or society on the basis of continued interaction and require little or no enforcement by any specific group. A stronger degree of conformity is convention, where the compliance is not just voluntary or customary, but where some sort of sanctions may exist for those who do not comply with convention. These may be informal sanctions, leading to mild disapproval, or they may be strong sanctions associated with discipline or ostracism. Usage and custom often become the basis of rules, and violation of these may ultimately have some sanctions applied. Where a convention is adopted by an individual or a group that has the legitimate capacity and duty to impose sanctions, the convention can become law. This can begin to create a legal order where a group assumes the task of applying sanctions to punish transgressions. This can be applied over a territorial unit, with order safeguarded by threat of physical force, then this can create a political order. Weber's theories on power and partnerships and how class status groups and political parties make up the structure of our society and permeates within our organizations have become salient and important in understanding how we can understand different relationships between the state and other types of entities. In our next lecture, we will be looking at one sort of relationship, notably looking at government-private enterprise relationships.